How is everybody doing? And welcome back for another Strength Chat episode. Today, I have got a very special guest for you all. Today, I'm joined by a four-time Paralympian winning a silver medal at the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. Today, I am joined by the one and only Ali Jawad. How are you doing? Hi, good. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Thanks a lot for taking the time to jump on. My pleasure. Um, so, how are you? What have you been up to recently? Uh, yeah, it's been action packed for me. So, um, I'm doing kind of two things at the moment. So, I'm studying for a PhD, um, and also I've got a startup. So, uh, it's quite it's quite busy. <laughs> so, plenty of things to plenty of things to keep uh, yeah keep keep you out of trouble then. Um, and what's your what, what's your PhD in? And how's the how's the startup going? Yeah, so the PhD is in um, basically anti-doping and cheating methods um, in para sport, which is uh, obviously quite a controversial topic. And then obviously last year I launched um, a fitness app, especially designed for people with disabilities. So um, I think it's the first one in the world as well. So it it has been it's been a roller coaster year because obviously like I'm not really a tech or entrepreneur, so uh, <laughs> I've, had to, I've, had, I've had to learn. Yeah, definitely. But with that, that makes it from seeing the seeing the smile on your face. It's like you know a good a good project to be to be working on. Um, obviously, I did you know quite a brief introduction there, and I'm sure um there's going to be a, a lot more of the the topics, especially when you mentioned about the uh, about the app about your PhD, which we'll get in, get into a little bit more as we dive into the episode. But for everyone listening who might not know your background, um involved in uh, in training obviously getting uh, doing your doing your phd and the app just want to give a little bit of a background to yourself yeah so i guess my background is in actually in elite para sport so uh my sport was para powerlifting uh which is basically just the bench press um i've been to yeah four paralympic games um i've been lucky enough to have won every single major medal uh, on offer uh world records world number one uh, for a few years um and still, yeah, like for me, it's and I've benched over two hundred at fifty-six kilo body weight, uh, raw by the way, not not shirted if people want to come <laughs> at me. But yeah, I've, um, that was my old life. Uh, uh, but I guess looking back, I'm like, how did how did I do that? <laughs> and how did because especially with that, you know, uh, 200, 200 kilo bench press, um, how did you get in? How did you start getting involved in? Uh, strength training because obviously you know from there you know you know breaking world records the the success that you had um how did you get involved in strength training and you know did it get to a point where you know um to get into the elite level you know how serious you know when did it become when did it become serious you know to to be lifting those weights yeah i guess i need to like put it into context so ever since i was about six i've always wanted to be a paralympian um, I guess I just had to have a sport that I was good at. So as a kid, I tried multiple sports, so judo, athletics. And then when I was about 16 during my GCSEs, um, my friend kind of forced me to the gym across the road from my school. Now, it was a proper you know, spit and sawdust gym, quite old, like Rocky Balboa style, <laughs> uh, which, which is actually I like that because I grew up with Rocky in terms of the films. Um, and obviously I've never been to a gym before, never did weights, but my first day ever in the gym, I lifted about hundred kilo bench press. Right. Yeah. I was 16. I was probably like middleweight. So only weighed, I weighed about 65 kilo at the time. Um, but yeah, the whole gym kind of stopped. I got, and then the owner got told, and then he came down and, um, said to me, like, 
if this is your first time, you have to come back. Uh, and that's how it happened. And then how did that how did that progress in terms of you know competitions and how did your you know training and you know nutrition you know over time over time develop because you know I love that as a as as a as a story you know I love the the, the Rocky films myself you know um you know going in um and getting catching that um powerlifting bug if you like or that strength training that strength training bug because it all starts you know for, with, with a story like uh, a story like that or because we because we enjoy it how did that kind of develop develop over time well i guess for me it was like the first conversation was you've got a shot at the paralympics which obviously excited me at 16 um but also within two weeks well actually the, the timing was actually weird because within two weeks there was a British championships but the thing is I'd missed the entry date obviously um however they did allow me to compete as a guest um but I ended up winning it that's two weeks after I started so so obviously you get spotted by the national team when you've got a 16 year old beating all these seniors and then yeah when you got into when you get to the national team it becomes a different level of uh, seriousness because you talk about maybe like you know they want you to start training as part of the team and then you're, you're probably there for like six months uh, with a few training camps and then they kind of ask you to commit for six months in terms of maybe three or four times training a week with your coach come to training camps see how you developed can they take you to competitions can you handle that pressure of training camps and being actually more strict in your lifestyle you know how you how do you live how do you live outside the gym uh, have you got the attributes to be a world-class athlete so everything at 16 was changed from you know being this carefree teen to being you know kind of cast into a world where it is a very strict lifestyle to reach that sort of level yeah and with that was your um because obviously with the with the coaching side of things um were your coaches the national coaches did you have your coach at the time or was it just sort of like with the with with the national setup no so how it was then was I had kind of two personal coaches. So, um, cause they worked in the same gym. So, um, they kind of like took it in turns because one was quite old and one was more my age. So they thought that complemented each other pretty well. Yeah. Um, when you got into the national team, initially they will work with your coaches. And then when you start getting funded, they have, I wouldn't say way more control, but they start kind of dictating how they think you should um live basically um because obviously they don't want to you know you don't want to invest in somebody that's going to be out going out raving every uh every (laughs) friday after training so um the good thing about my setup was my personal coach used to be the national coach right um so for me it was like i knew early on what i had to do uh which was so that means it complemented what the national team wanted and what my coach wanted so there was never any big arguments i guess the big thing was was actually when I had to move to the National Performance Centre, and that's when, yeah, the national team had pretty much full control. Right. And with that, because obviously you said there, you know, at, at 16, going from, you know, having just walked into the gym, benching 100, to then being in being in that uh, that that setup of that of that of that structure um and that and, and that routine what were kind of the um uh, challenges or, or or struggles with that um because you know sometimes it's a case of oh you get a couple of competitions underneath your belt and then you know you, you gravitate more towards that you know how did how did you find that and then you know were there any changes throughout sort of 
your lifting career where it changed a little bit and you know maybe pulled back a little bit I know obviously the success that you that you had but was there any change was there any changes as you sort of went through and obviously as you got older got older as well yeah so I think it probably changed through time with different phases of my career so I'd say in the beginning the strictness wasn't as much because I was only 16 they wanted me to enjoy it and not be put off by the standard um, however, my personal coach said that good juniors uh, can beat seniors. So he always didn't, he didn't protect me. He said, look, you're going to be competing. I'm going to put you against seniors. We're not going to just go for the junior competitions. So early on, I realized what it took to really be at their level. Because obviously as a junior, I was very good. Um, but then when I went to the senior competitions, I thought, I'm not that great. <laughs> because like when I, when I get to, you know, 21, 22, 23, and you become a senior, you'll be nowhere near them. So from 16, I, I realized that actually um, I had to live in a way that the seniors lived. Um, so I wasn't going out. I was planning and organizing my life in a way that um, kind of made me recover from training and I was ready for training. And like everything was kind of centered around just being the best it can be um, quite early on because that was installed in me from my personal coaches which actually complemented the national coaches really well because they thought the 16 roads given up quite a lot quite early, which is good. Yeah, 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 definitely. And you mentioned there, obviously, things out, out outside of the gym um, in terms of, you know, recovery and, and all those sorts of things. How did, um, did, did that change over time as well? Or was there any points where you thought, oh, actually, you know, you, you mentioned there, you know, if we were going, going out raving and it's like, right, okay, how do we, how, how do we change that around? Um, you know, did that, did that change over time or was there anything where it was a case of, right, okay, I need to, you know, push a little bit more, especially, you know, the, the world records that you, that you broke as well was the times where, you know, you, um, it was a little bit more intense, if you like. Yeah. So I'd say like, um, when I was very young, we'd probably like periodize when I'm allowed to really go out and let my hair down um, only because they still wanted me to have fun and still hang out with mates. So that was all planned. Um, I guess when I got older and I got better, um, that became, the lifestyle became really strict in terms of because you're dealing with fine margins and your training is monitored to, you know, the, to the T, any little tiny change in that, is a big is a big effect on on yeah. on on your like on your lifting. So, for example, like if you if you're in week four um, of your training block, which is obviously the hardest block, the hardest week in that block, you don't need to be going out the week before um, because you know you're you're, you're going to not recover. However, you could potentially get get away with hanging out with people in week one when it's yeah, like yeah. a recovery week. So everything was kind of um, we will organize it in a way where balance was key, but training came first, recovery came first, nutrition came first, sleep came first. So like, yeah, um, it was it was a lot of planning. Um, I guess when you when you when I progressed through the uh, through the years. Yeah. 
I think the the key thing that you said there was the the balance side of things, um, because I know obviously you're speaking about there. You know, it was um, it, it wasn't a, a, or maybe at times it might have felt like a dictatorship. You know, um, but you know, keeping with the um, uh, with the training and those sorts of things, there still has to be some flexibility flexibility in there. Um, especially like what you said, you know, week one might be different to to week four because if it is the heaviest week of training, yeah, there's nothing worse than walking into the gym if you've got a if you've got a banging head from the from the weekend or anything with that as well and and now that you sort of um maybe look back at your at your lifting career even though you know um starting at a real young age kind of maybe two two questions on this what were sort of the opportunities that getting involved in in strength training allowed you uh allowed you to do to to, to experience but then also what were the lessons that you learned from the gym that has kind of carried with you outside of the gym if that kind of makes sense yeah so i guess the experiences i was quite lucky in terms of you know traveling around the world um obviously getting funded at 16 like not many 16 year olds and what i did um <laughs> and did it by just going to the gym that's what i thought at the time i was like i'm going to the gym and i'm getting paid for it i can't believe it <laughs> um even though it was like you know pretty small compared to what it was um, it was still something. I guess also as well, you get a lot of, like you make a lot of friends globally. You actually grow up your rivals, like, because mm-hmm. you are competing against them from junior age all the way up to retirement. Um, so you do make lifelong friends. But also as well, like when you get better and better, uh, you got opportunities, you know, when you go into events and you get invited to, you know, VIP parties and you, know, you actually do get to live the, the other life to what when you're actually quite good and get so you get invited to all these events that you'd never think yeah uh, you'd be associated with at all i guess um what was your second question uh so in terms of you know the the strength side of the the strength training side of things you know a lot of people i'm a big believer in terms of the strength that you get um in the gym can also replicate outside you know i think people can learn a, a lot of good lessons and you know from uh from you training especially you know going on to do your phd obviously doing a doing a startup as well what were kind of the uh the biggest impact that you know going to the gym had an impact outside of the gym as well in terms of your mindset in terms of you know the goals that you had outside of the gym as well yeah so i guess the big one for me was um patience uh, trusting in a process, a process that is unpredictable, um, and you have to be adaptable and flexible within that process. Getting through adversity as well, um, big one. I guess the, the biggest thing that I learned was to not focus on any outcome because any outcome is a distraction. Because, um, you know, somebody said to me that if you've only got one eye, if you've got one eye on the outcome, you've only got one eye on the process. And if we miss anything, it could be catastrophic. Yeah. So do what you can do every day, accumulate enough consistent days and you're going to have a good shot. Um, so yeah, I never really focused on the outcome when I was older. It was all about, right, what am I doing today? What am I doing tomorrow? Um, and every day I took it as it came. But that required a lot of planning and monitoring and also being adaptable and flexible on the actual day of training. So even if, you know, I, I need to be able to understand my body to think, right, I'm not going to do what's programmed today, but what can I do today to still make it effective and stimulate growth and recovery? So, yeah, like I know a lot of people like ego lift. They like putting weights on and getting stronger and stronger every day. But I'm a big, big fan of velocity-based training. 
um, because that's that's got me to where where I am uh, because it's actually just a little bit it gives you more control. Yeah, definitely. And this might be a little bit of a little bit of a tangent there, but you know, it's a little bit like what you said there about the the ego lifting, and you know, um, you were thinking about right, what can I do today, even if you know it isn't planned in terms in terms of training. What is it that I can that I can do to to allow me to um get ready for a competition or get those get those extra margin extra margins? Do you think that's where maybe sometimes a lot of people go wrong, and that's the difference between training and working out, if that makes sense? Yeah. So when I was obviously growing up, it was all about ego lifting. How much can you improve? Like, wanna not max out every session but improving that rep range every session and obviously progress is not linear. You're going to have a massive dip eventually. Uh, and that, that hits home quite hard. So I, when I, I remember like when I used to have bad training sessions, it used to actually affect my life. I, I was miserable to be around as a kid when I had a bad session. And then probably 2012, uh, when we started using velocity-based training, I realized that actually your potential changes daily. So what can you do that day? Uh, in line with your potential that day to stimulate growth for that day and still yeah. contribute to the bigger picture. So I, be I became more kind of self-aware because you, you, you kind of had like an external, you know, sub um, objective measure where actually it kind of calls your bullshit and your bias. Because yeah. um, you can say, oh, I feel incredible today, but the numbers, you know, when it comes to monitoring are not there. So you can actually, instead of pushing and hurting yourself because injury is a big risk, yeah. You actually hold back, do like do what you can that day to you know still progress, and still be happy that you've contributed to the process. Um, yeah, rather than going absolutely nuts that uh, you've had a bad session. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, for me, I learned that actually, um, leave your ego and your bias at the door, and have some sort of objective measure to track what you're doing because that is a big kind of you know it's, for for me it was a big learning. Uh, about how my body worked, how I recovered, uh, what my body can tolerate, uh, and also how, how how I had to live um, to give me them benefit gains in the gym. Um, so everything was monitored in a way where every aspect of my life um, kind of contributed to what was going on in the gym. Um, so yeah, you have to always have an objective measure. Yeah, definitely. And as well, I think um, there's more um, access to sort of uh, velocity-based training training as well and obviously it can it can range in terms of you know the the equipment the equipment that you're having but I think a lot more people you know especially within you know the uh, the, the strength sports are using are using them a little bit more and it isn't always a case of you know I have the I've had conversations where it's like oh we just need to put more weight on the bar why did that feel rubbish whereas actually you know you kind of summed it up there what do you need to do that day even if we're feeling good you know, you can still create that stimulus. And, and one thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier as well is that is that balance a little bit more because, you know, if our training is going up and down and our mood's going up and down, we're not having that consistency. We're not we're not being able to progress going forward. In terms of that, like when you mentioned when you're uh, obviously younger, you know, um, uh, not being the, the best person to be around if, if a list if a list hasn't uh, hasn't gone well. But um, did that over time be able to uh, allow you to still enjoy training? Because I know sometimes people can think, you know, the more apps we involve, the more gadgets we involve in our training, it becomes all consuming. Whereas actually, did you still enjoy it? Because I can imagine, you know, there's probably a little bit of competitiveness there when it comes into the velocity-based training, trying to hit those numbers. Would that would that be right? What kind of your thoughts? 
Yeah, so I think in the early stages, I was uh, always looking at what my speeds were. So obviously, it doesn't matter how bad the training sessions were previously, you're always trying to hit PB speeds. Because if you think if you get PB speeds, you can actually push that session because your body is allowed you to do it. Um, I guess from, from my point of view, um, there were obviously periods where when training weren't going great, um, it, they, they, it wasn't, I guess you had to accept that with any training program, you're going to have phases in a year where there'll be a dip. Yeah. Like you can't peak every month. Um, but you have to remember, we had to peak for competition. So even if that peak, if that dip wasn't um, in competition time, who cared? Because um, that that dip was needed to peak for competition. So for me, like I, I had to put it into perspective that actually, um, luckily, it wasn't at any major championships. Um, <laughs> it just it happened. It happened, you know, in the off season. Um, to say so. Yeah, like sometimes you have to go right what is the bigger picture is this part of the process yes do i need this dip so i can recover to really push on in future cycles well yes um so everything was about actually like it, i always say it doesn't really matter what you do in the gym like it doesn't matter what you lift in the gym it matters on the day when the pressure's on so if that dip helps you um achieve that optimal goal in competition then it was just part of the process and you have to, and you have to be able to accept that without um, your ego taking a hit. And I, they always say like, leave your ego at the door uh, and because weights can humble you. Yeah, definitely. I thought that was, I thought that was really uh, a really good piece that you, that, that you said there. Cause especially I think people who are first getting involved in, uh, in strength training and looking to get involved in competitions, it's all about that one competition. Whereas actually, just as an example, how long would you have between between competitions? Probably three and four months. Um, so, like I'd say, like we'd have two national comps a year. So one 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 British and one maybe Grand Prix event nationally, and then you you could have up to two or three internationals a year, depending on the year. So for us, there'll be one major championship a year, and then you've got the regional championships. So you've got like I don't know the Pan American Open or you know, the Asian Open or a Grand Prix, a Grand Prix event in Dubai. Um, but there's always at least one Worlds or Europeans a year. Obviously, yeah. Commonwealth Games as well. Um, yeah. and, and then with, the, with that amount of time, like what you're saying about, about the dip, uh, about a dip in training, like you say, it could be actually working in your favour because I think, you know, um, like what you've said about, you know, what can you do on that day listening to your, listening to your body, your body's a pretty smart thing. It'll tell you if it needs if it needs a rest, or maybe you've pushed it a little bit too far. And I think that's where people can sometimes um, uh, lose sight of the fact of it's not as though we're playing, you know, rugby or football or anything like that, where you know it's happening every single uh, every single week. You're going to have time, you know, in between those competitions to be able to set yourself up from that. And then a hundred percent, you know, you talk about, um, you know, the. Uh, the, the gaps between or between major competitions, the bigger picture, four years between you know the Paralympic Games. That's that that's like that that's the that's the bigger picture. Um, how how were your experiences? You know at the at the Paralympic Games and you know being able to to go to these 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 different venues. So I think every major is different. So as a kid, it was all about the Paralympic Games. That's where you know you, that's where you want to compete at. But actually, like 
if you look at every major championship in isolation, they're all very important because a lot of athletes, when they retire, they they only look at their major medals, their major championship medals. So because of the Europeans, Worlds and Commonwealth Games are majors, they contribute to your medal hall in your career. So they, be, they become important to you in the process, where for me as a kid, it was all about the Paralympics. Um, they always say that the Paralympics is the biggest occasion like in the world, but actually it's, for us, it's the world championships, which is the hardest to win. Right. Because, because there's, more, there's, there's a lot of lifters that are, more lifters are allowed there from, from loads of countries, so you can enter more people. So if a country is strong, they've got two or three that could probably beat you rather than just one at the Paralympic Games. Ah, uh, all right, okay. Yeah, so the way, the way it's done is that actually the World Championships are very hard to win and the Commonwealth Games are also very hard to win because it's done on a formula, coefficient formula. Right. So it's not you lifting against your bodyweight class, it's you being combined with five other bodyweight classes put together. So you're really up, you're really going to have to lift a lot to have, to have a shot. Yeah, and did the did the tactics change, um, maybe year to year, or as you um as you progressed, you know, uh, a lot more from there? Because I know again going back to you know starting at that at, at that young age, you know, as you got more experience, did you have a little bit more involvement in the in the tactics from the I say the tactics, but in terms of the planning, um, uh, for the more experience that that you gained and the more knowledge that you gained. Yes, yeah, so I'd say after 2012, the culture and the national team shifted from, I wouldn't say a dictatorship at all, I'd say that it was kind of their way uh, and their way only. But then after 2012, when the changes happened, they realised that actually, you know, because athletes, like, they, they are competing and it is their career, they should be responsible for their career rather than being spoon-fed information. They right. should actually be part of the conversation. So I said, since 2012, um, it was actually, you know, they, they said, right, you're as responsible as they are. They're just guides and it's up to you. They'll give you all the information available to you and then it's up to you to decide. So actually we became 100% part of the conversation, but also we get to decide because it was, but, you know, we, get, we got all that responsibility, yeah. which obviously was quite weird at first because I thought, so if I made a big mistake, it's on me pretty much. <laughs> But no, it wasn't. We we no, nobody blamed anybody. Uh, we you know we got through things as a team, but being part of that, being part of the decision making process was was great for me because what it allowed me to do was it allowed me to learn about every single practitioner's job and what they had to go through f to monitor me and what kind of questions I had to ask them to make them accountable to me. Because, you know, you're relying on the physio to make sure that your ranges are good and there's no niggles. You're relying on the nutritionist to get it right in terms of nutritionally. You're obviously relying on your coach to make sure that your program is as the best it could be and the monitoring strategy there in place. So you became like an, a mini expert on like nutrition, coaching, training programs, writing it, how to prioritize um, psychology. So obviously, like I'm not an expert, but you become a mini expert. So you have to learn. Um, so you learn to become, well, basically to ask the right questions, basically. Yeah, definitely. And I think in terms of that, you know, from there, the more you have an idea of a, of a big of, of a bigger picture, because you know, especially in you know individual sports, people just see the the end result, whereas actually the work that goes into it, there's a team sort of behind the scenes. So the more you can learn as an athlete, it's the same when I'm working with clients, you know. 
it's a case of, you know, if they can understand a little bit more, know why I'm asking those. Well, yeah, the biggest thing is know why it's happening, know what questions to, to ask. It makes them um, not just uh, not just a robot, but, you know, a thinking, uh, a thinking person to be able to like, right, okay, how do I make these decisions? What What is going to be the best choice from there? And from from what you've said, that that leads nicely kind of into the the next part that I wanted to touch on because from all those skills that you've learned there, being able to understand, you know, uh, the training, the nutrition, the psychology, going into building a a, a startup, I'm sure there's been a lot of parts, uh, a lot of parts to build up from there and become a mini expert in, you know, a, a lot a lot of other things. Do you just want to give a little bit more um, uh, information and detail about, you know, the, the the startup and the and the model that you've created? Yeah. So, to give you some context, I guess I obviously grew up. I grew up in gyms uh, from probably sixteen, and the one thing that I never asked myself was, you know, why was I the only disabled person in the gym? I never asked that at all. Um, I guess during lockdown, you have more time to reflect. Um, and obviously I was still training for Tokyo and doing my PhD, but the other time I was like reflecting on my career, uh, asking myself whether or not I was good enough or, uh, if I was actually satisfied with my career sort of thing. The one thing that I thought about wasn't the medals and the records or anything like that it was actually, has it actually changed since I was a kid in terms of more disabled people just going to the gym, forget about just like powerlifting just going to the gym to be healthy like everyone else yeah. and to do it independently without relying on um able-bodied people to guide them um so i thought well the answer is probably no because it's been like 17 years since i started um and we're still seeing that massive gap in the in the fitness industry with you know able-bodied people and disabled people so i thought to myself well there must be a fitness app out there especially designed for the disability community and I want to go find out where it is and how it's kind of, what features does it have? So I spent about two hours searching um, for this non-existent app. <laughs> then I realized quite quickly that actually it doesn't exist. Um, so I thought, okay, that's one, that's outrageous, especially in the times we're in now. Yeah. And two, actually I started writing like features down of what an accessible app would look like. Just like, you know, just what I think. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing major <clears throat> within an hour i had this paper of what an app could look like like a, like a mini framework i thought well it looks all right but this is just my opinion and also as a disabled person you can say that i'm lucky in terms of the opportunities that i've had so actually i'm probably out of touch so i'm gonna leave it for a you know a day or two and uh you know really reflect on whether or not i want to even think about doing it mm. Um, so after two days, I was like, you know what? I need to find somebody that could do it. So like give it to them and they'll do it and not me because I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a tech person. I'm just an athlete. So I called up my, um, my manager at the time. I said, oh, I've got a crazy idea, but I need somebody to, you know, ask me loads of questions about it. Make me accountable. You know, just like do something. Um, when I told him about the idea and the features and how it could work, he said, yeah, it's, that's a crazy idea, but... I think you're the only one that can pull it off. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, like all the attributes as an athlete, you have as an entrepreneur. Like it's the same thing. Um, it's all about process. It's all about long goals. It's all about ha having the best team around you. All about learning and being adaptable. You've got all that quite easily. And I was like, yeah, but 
I don't know how to code. I don't know, like, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, we, we built it together during lockdown, which was crazy because um, you couldn't actually meet up with anybody. <laughs> and then within, within a year of the idea, we launched it. Yeah, awesome. quite, quite remarkable. Uh, obviously, 24 Paralympic Games, I'm doing a PhD on top. Um, <laughs> and then launching this. So uh, it was quite a hectic year. Yeah, awesome. And with that, you know, it's it's like with anything, you know, the the main thing that you that you said there was sort of like the the accessibility, because especially with the with, with the with the strength training side of things, there's um, uh, variations and things that we can do to to help to 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 help, you know, and especially like what you've said there, not just necessarily to get involved in in powerlifting, but just from a from a health point of point of view, you know, people talk about them. Um, you know the uh, the Fitbits and the technology in terms of the cardio side of things, whereas strength training has a big impact in, impact on health. What has been the response, you know, from the from the app, um, and as well in terms of because the entry point for strength training, you know, there's there's something that we can that, that, that we can always do. Do you think that has opened up um, the entry point of getting involved in in strength training? Yeah, so I think the, the idea behind it is that I wanted disabled people to actually go to the gym and actually integrate in society. Mm-hmm. But I knew that gyms themselves are not fully accessible. So you're asking a disabled person to go to a gym and struggle and have that experience actually be not great. Yeah. So what the app does, it it's kind of progressive. So what it does, it has an, um, a library of video exercises that is performed by somebody of your impairment. So you know exactly how it's adapted to your impairment. So we don't give out training programs. So this is where the learning comes in. What the user can do, because they're the expert on their impairment, not me, they create their own training session through the video exercises that we give them. Now, what that does is they get to factor in three locations, home-based, outdoor-based, and gym-based. So if they've never been to a gym before, they can start at home and then when they get comfortable, they can progress and actually eventually go to the gym. The idea for me, the end goal is they go to the gym and integrate and actually have fun and actually be around the society, not start staying at home. Um, so I want them to actually go out. But I do understand with gyms being the way they are, um, they have to get fit and active somehow. Um, so I thought, well, how do I tackle the gym problem? So one of the features in the app is the explore section where users can make the accessibility of any gym in the local area. Right. So the user has power to rate the accessibility of anything around them in terms of gyms and um, sporting facilities. And that'll give some people confidence about where is the most accessible place for them to train. Yeah, I think the key thing that you said there is is that confidence, that, that, that confidence side of things, because with that, you know, it's, I think the 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 gym can be, um, you know, an an intimidating an intimidating place, you know, um, and not be as uh, as accessible. Whereas having that there, building up that confidence, you know, it's kind of st- um, stacking everything in terms of the the pros of look. This is what we can do. You know, we can get to the, get to the get to these other gyms and, and and increase that. And I think in terms of the development of you know going from the home to outside to the gym, it kind of builds it up a little bit like what you were saying. Um, you know, at the start in terms of that periodization, that's kind of like the bigger picture as well. So even though because it was interesting, you said they obviously feeling uh, potentially feeling a little bit out of touch being the be competing at the elite level, but equally that same 
uh, planning can be the exact same for somebody who just wants to go to the gym, just wants to feel stronger. Because from there, from like what you've said, all the attributes of an athlete applying that to um, the, the business side of things, you can everyone can still get those you know benefits uh, be- benefits from there. What kind of is the um, is the future? For that, for, for the app, where do you, where do you see sort of the development of that going? Well, I launched it for a few reasons, but the big one was to actually show the fitness industry that it can be done with appetite and actually execution. Because uh, I'm sick and tired of the fitness industry leaving to sell people behind. Mm-hmm. So I've managed to prove that it can be done. Uh, and and I guess for me, it's the future is making it the most accessible fitness app there's ever been. Uh, which would mean that I might have to have maybe 180 plus impairments in the app, which will take a very long time because of the <laughs> filming content. But that has to be the aim. That has to be the ultimate. If, if as an athlete, the Paralympic Games is the ultimate, then for a fitness app like this, it has to be the most accessible. That's ha- that has to be that has to be the aim, um, and that's the goal. It's obviously a big one. A lot of people think it's near impossible to cater for everybody. But if that's not the aim, then there's no point starting anything like this. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a. I think that's a really good point. You know, it's got to be that case of. I think that's a really. Um, you, you're similar to me in that respect. I, I use always sporting analogies as well. You know, what's the ultimate? You know, apply that to sport. What's the ultimate? You know, why why can't that be done? Um, obviously, you've said there in terms of the factors of time, but that's the thing of you know. Um, we can still find that time to to add into it and, and and build it up from there. Same as again, you know, to to mention it again, you know, four years, you know, for uh, for the for, for the games, it's that thought process of look, we've got time to be able to do that. You can find time to do that, find time to to add it up from there. Um, thanks a lot, Ali, for for taking the time to jump on. Quite a lot of topics covered there and a, and a few tangents thrown in. Um, the the last question um that that, that I like to ask is from everything that we've chatted about there, what would be your take-home points or words of wisdom? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, so I always say that um, when it comes to goal setting, you shouldn't limit yourself. Um, I feel like a lot of people are kind of sceptical about what they can achieve in the future. So I always say to people, Aim for the impossible, like for something that a lot of people think you're crazy for. Even if you get close to it, you've done something pretty special anyway. Um, and you know what? Sometimes you actually do pull it off. Yeah, aim for the impossible uh, and try to get as close as possible because uh, you know you've actually achieved great. But a lot of people limit themselves in terms of how big they, they aim for things. Yeah, definitely. I think as you were saying that, I think the the phrase that um comes to mind is um uh what is it shoot shoot for the moon and land on the stars or shoot for the stars and land on the moon like that's still exactly. that's, that, that, that's still pretty impressive. Um, I think sometimes you know um people have a a fear of failure, but then I think equally there's that fear of of success. Like what happens if you actually do you know, uh, achieve it. What well, actually, if you do go, go from there rather than, you know, I like what you, like what you mentioned with the app of, you know, right, this is what I want to aim for. You know, there is a possibility that you, that, that, that you will achieve it. You know, and um, there's, there's another phrase where it's um keep pretending who you want to be until you become that, 
become that person. You know, it's uh, everything is within um uh, within within control. Um, thanks again, uh, Ali. Really, really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Chatting with you today. If anyone has any questions um about what we've chatted about today, questions about the app, or just see the the content and information that you put out there, where could people find you or reach out to you? Uh, yeah, so like you can, well, you can probably follow me on social media. Um, you can follow the app on Exercise. So um, yeah, I guess just yeah, reach out on social media and ask questions. Um, I'll reply. Awesome. Uh, thanks a lot, Ali, for taking the time to jump on. Thanks a lot to everyone listening, and I will see you all next week. <laughs>